You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. A man named Forrest Finn loved collecting ancient artifacts. He loved it so much that he opened his own gallery and began to sell them. He did very well and earned about $6 million a year. So for a number of years, he lived a life of luxury. Until 1988, he learned he had cancer. And he began asking the deeper questions of life, like, what is this all for? Will people remember me? And he decided to do something significant with his life before he left earth. He decided he would take some of those ancient artifacts and put them in a box and take this treasure and put it in the Rocky Mountains somewhere. And he would hide it and, cre- and, and other people would search for it long after he had died and experienced the thrill of adventure. And so that's what he decided to do. Now, in the meantime, he learned he actually survived his cancer But he wanted to follow through with his plan. So he bought a 20-pound, 12th century, 10 by 10 box, and a bronze box, and he began putting all these artifacts in it. He put rare gold coins, he put jewelry, all kinds of things in there, even a book. And he took that box and went and hid it in the Rocky Mountains. He was the only person who knew where it was. And from that moment, he decided, hey, the treasure hunt is on. And so people began searching. In 2013, he appeared on the Today Show to generate some interest in this treasure hunt. Over the last nine or 10 years, it's estimated 350,000 people have been out searching for this treasure. At one point, he was receiving 100 emails a day, people just trying to get clues to find this treasure. It's incredible. People are quitting their jobs in order to have more time to go search for this treasure. There's a man in England who was in the States, and and while he and his family were here, they were out searching for the treasure. There was another lady who made over 300 trips out searching for this treasure. She spent about $15,000. And unfortunately, even at least four people died while searching for this treasure. It's amazing what people will do and what we will give up in order to search for something valuable. You see, people in our world are searching. People are searching for answers. They're searching for justice. They're searching for peace with God. They're searching for meaning in life and purpose and healing and forgiveness and all kinds of things. But the question is, where do we go to search for those things? There's a lot of places you can go. You could try your career. You could try health. You could try relationships. You could try money. You can search in a lot of different ways. And tonight, we want to talk about where do we go to search for answers? I want you to think about one thing tonight that you're searching for. It's something that you want really badly right now. And I would ask you the question, have you asked God about it? Have you inquired of him? Tonight, we want to look, uh, continue to look at the, the study of Elisha. And Elisha is a man, people come to him, and they're searching for answers tonight. It's a a story of Elisha and the kings. These three kings are searching, and one of them is incredibly frustrated. And they come to Elijah looking for answers, and Elijah knows exactly where to go. He goes to God, and God gives him the answer for these kings. So let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 3. 2 Kings chapter 3. 
In this chapter, we will see Elisha's ministry begin to expand. You remember the last chapter, he was at Jericho, he was at Bethel, he was at the Jordan, the sons of the prophets saw him. People were beginning to realize, hey, this is a man of God. He is succeeding Elijah. But now we will see Elisha with kings. See, at this point, we, the king of Israel doesn't know who Elisha is. But by the end of this chapter, he will know exactly who Elisha is. What, what's interesting to me in this chapter is that Elisha doesn't seek any attention from these kings. In fact, they seek him. He was just there minding his own business but they came to him. Now, you remember that King Ahaziah had died back in chapter 1. He fell from the balcony. He died, and um, uh, another man came to rule for two years. And then uh, Jehoram, Jehoram came to reign here, it says in chapter 3, and he came to reign for 12 years. Now, Jehoram was the brother of, of uh, Joah, or um, he was the brother of the previous king, which means his parents were also Ahab and Jezebel. So they certainly would have had an influence on this king as well. And so, uh, so here we go. So for 12 years, 852 to 841, Jehoram was king. Now, you would, in one sense, we would say he was better than his dad, uh, but at the same time, he was no reformer. Uh, his mom, Jezebel, was still alive, so certainly she would have had an influence on his leadership. His name means Yahweh is exalted. So just in hearing his name, you would think, hey, this is promising. Uh, you know, maybe he's going to turn the nation back to God, but, uh, it, but sadly, that's not what happened. It says he clung to the sin of Jeroboam. That's a strong word. It means clung is stronger than he committed or he followed. He clung to it. He hung tightly to the sin of Jeroboam. Now, what was the sin of Jeroboam? Jeroboam set up uh, idols. He set up these golden calves in, in uh, Bethel and Dan. And it was really a political move to keep the Israelites from going down to Jerusalem to worship. He wanted them to stay up in Israel so they would remain divided and under his control. And so they worshiped these golden calves. And, and so uh, Jehoram was a man of tolerance. Uh, he, he did take down... You, write, you see that in verse 2, he took down the pillar of Baal that his father had made, but he still tolerated the religion, even though he didn't participate in it. And so he was a man of tolerance. He, 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 he tried to please both sides. And so that's a little bit of the background in verses 1 through 3 of what's happening here. Now, a problem arises in verse 4. Now, Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel, 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. So he had a tribute that he paid annually to the king of Israel. Well, when there was a transition in leadership, when Jehoram became king, he thought, hey, I'll take advantage of this situation. Maybe he's not as harsh as his dad was or his brother, so I, I think I'll just stop paying this tribute. And so the king of Israel says, well, I'll not put up with that. I'll, I'll just get the military and we'll come after you. And so Jehoram reaches out to the king of Israel, I'm sorry, Judah, which is Jehoshaphat, and said, hey, will you go with me to fight the Moabites? And the king of Judah says, yes. He says, this is in verse 7, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. So now they're forming an alliance, and they're going to also team up with the people of Edom, and now they're going to go fight the Moabites. 
So apparently, Moab's northern borders were fortified, and so it's going to be easier, although it's a harder trip, it's going to be easier to attack them from the south. So Israel's in the north, and of course, Judah's south of there. Edom was even southeast of Judah, and Moab is up here. Now, in the midst of all of that is the Dead Sea. And so Israel is going to have to travel south through Jerusalem, down through Judah to Edom, and then they're going to have to come up this way. So they're going like a fishhook pattern up to Moab. So it was a long journey. It was dangerous. There were mountains in Moab. And, uh, but in the end, the southern entry point would have been easier because it was not as fortified as the northern part. So now we see here in verse 9 and 10, verses 9 and 10, the problem actually gets worse. The real problem was with Moab, but now a secondary problem develops. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah, is verse 9, and the king of Edom. So these are the allied forces. And when they had made a uh, circuitous march of seven days, so they're just going really in a circle, that fish hook pattern up to, uh, through Edom up to Moab, for seven days, this is a dry area. There is no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. So they're over by the Dead Sea. They're seven days into this journey. They're exhausted, probably on to the point of dehydration, and now there's no water. So what, what, what do you do? You've got troops. This is almost like Israel in the wilderness so many years before. Remember, they came out of Egypt, and there's no water, and they, they're fussing at Moses. You know, oh, the Lord, you just brought us out here to die. And this is very reminiscent of of. of hundreds of years earlier when they came out of Egypt. And so in a moment of frustration in verse 10, the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. God has called us out here to defeat us. He's not on our side. Now what is so interesting, not a single one of these kings had sought God's direction. We don't read anywhere in here of Jehoshaphat praying or at least to this point of saying, hey, thank you for the invitation, King Jehoram. Uh, let me spend a couple days in prayer before I get back to you. He didn't do that. He just said, I will go. My army, my horses, they're your horses. And they march right out heading for battle. No one stops to pray. But who is the first person they blame? They blame God. Have you ever done that? Have you ever launched out into something without consulting God? And when the bottom fell out or it didn't go right or you got fired or something didn't, just didn't work out the way you wanted, you blamed God. You thought, well, God just did this to me or he let this happen and I don't understand it. Well, maybe all of us have done that at some point. Uh, that's, what, that's what happens when we don't consult God, when we don't ask for his guidance, we don't ask for his wisdom. We, we blame him as if it was, were his fault. They were frustrated. And so this brings us to the first of two points. Now, last week I had eight for you. Tonight I've just got two. But this is the first one. In facing life challenges, we often search for help at the wrong source. In facing life challenges, we often search for help at the wrong source. In order to handle Moab, Jehoram's looking to Israel. He's looking to Edom. Uh, he's not looking to God uh, that's for sure, because he allowed Baal worship, so he's not depending on God. Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat's not depending upon God. And um, you might be in the middle of a situation as well where there's some type of conflict. You're up against something, and, and you have a choice to make. Either I'm going to try to 
seek for help in all these other areas, or I can turn to God. And that's what these kings should have done. And, and maybe that's what you should have done earlier too. But even if you didn't, God is full of mercy. He's full of grace. He's, he's, he's waiting. He's waiting for us if we'll just turn to him in submission and humility and say, oh, God, have mercy. God, would you forgive me? I should have, I should have come to, to you with this a long time ago. But, Lord, would you have mercy? Would you intervene? Would you forgive me? And you know what? God will have mercy because he's gracious as God's word tells us, he's compassionate. He's full of mercy. He longs for his children to turn to him. Um, there was a, um, a song written a number of years ago uh, by two elementary teachers in Mississippi. This was in the 1970s. They were second grade teachers. And they noticed the children that would come into their classrooms, the children that had the most problems were the ones that failed to get enough attention at home. There were problems at home, and so they would come to school, and they would act out in class, and there were all kinds of issues. And they got attention all right, but it was negative attention. Uh, but they, they, they had problems at home, so there were problems at school. And so these ladies began writing a song. They sent it to a composer named Bob Morrison, and this is uh, part of the song. I was looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces, searching their eyes and looking for traces of what I'm dreaming of. Remember that song? Some of you will be singing that the rest of the night. And, uh, but these ladies wrote that song inspired by these second graders who are looking for love, looking for acceptance in all the wrong places and getting in trouble along the way. And isn't that just like us? Sometimes we look for acceptance, we look for recognition, we look for peace, we look for happiness and joy in all the wrong places. Instead, Jesus says, come to me, I'll give you rest. That's what we're really looking for, but we often go to the wrong place. And so that's where these kings were, and they were frustrated. But thankfully, verse 11, things began to change. I wonder if Jehoshaphat just, you know, something clicked in his mind and he thought, oh, yeah, you know what? I've sought God before and he answered me and he intervened. So something clicked with him. And he says, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the, uh, and he had done this before, by the way, 1 Kings 22.5, he told King Ahab, uh, Jehoram's dad to inquire first for the Lord, whether he would go into battle with Ahab. So he had a track record of doing this before. It's just in this moment, it, he, it had failed, he had failed to do that. One of Jehoram's servants spoke up. Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here. Uh, now, we don't, this is so interesting to me. We don't know how long Elisha had been here. Remember last time we saw him, he was returning to Samaria. So at some point, God would have told him, because Samaria is way up north, God would have told him to go down this area, to head down toward Edom. That would have been quite a journey. But obviously, Elisha obeyed, and he's there minding his business. He's there on God's business. He, he, he probably had no idea why God would have led him there. And Jehoshaphat had apparently heard of Elisha, we don't know that for sure, but he had, at least, he had at least heard of him, but he definitely had heard of Elijah. And so maybe when he heard Elijah, he thought, oh, I can trust him. So if Elisha was with him, he, yeah, he, he's, he's trustworthy. God's word is with him. 
And so the kings go down to see Elisha. Notice Elisha doesn't go to see them. They go to see him. And Elisha's opening words to the kings here is very reminiscent of, of uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel. He's, he's full of sarcasm. He's not very friendly to them. His first question really means, hey, what do we have in common? That's really what he's asking King Jehoram. Hey, what, what, what do you and I have in common? You worship Baal. You, you tolerate evil. I worship Yahweh. What do we have in common? We, we really don't have anything in common. And so he's, Elisha is irritated that here's King Jehoram who's allowed all this idolatry, who's clung to the, the sins of, of Jeroboam, and now all of a sudden there's an emergency and he wants to hear from God. And, and you probably get frustrated at people like that too, that they have no time for God until it's an emergency and all of a sudden I want to hear a word from God. I want God to speak to me. And so Elisha is just irritated. He really has no time for Jehoram. Um, he's frustrated at him. Uh, and he, 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 in fact, he tells him, he said, I wouldn't even look at you um, were Jehoshaphat not here. So he's not trying to gain an audience with the kings. He's not trying to uh, please people here. You know, the apostle Paul wrote this, am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, in other words, there were a time, there was a time in his life when he did try to please man. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. It doesn't mean we have to be rude to people, but it just means we're ultimately here to please the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the, Elisha doesn't have to try to win the king's favor. He doesn't try to have to woo them. He's there to represent God to them. And so uh, Jehoshaphat, it also says in 1 Kings 22, that he walked in all the way of Asa, his father. He did not turn from it doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. So Elisha knew him, at least to have a history, to have a track record of being a man of God. So he says, you know, were he not here, if I didn't have regard for Jehoshaphat, I would neither look at you nor see you. But he says, now um, bring, bring, the, bring, bring the musician. Bring me a musician. There's something about music that is soothing to our souls and it softens our hearts to God. Just like hearing the beautiful violin play earlier in the service, just prepares our heart to worship God, just tunes out the distractions and the busyness of life and, and just softens our heart so we can focus our attention on him. And I believe that's what happened here. Just as the musician played, it probably would have been a harp or, or some instrument like a harp. As the musician played, Elisha would have just tuned out the kings in front of him and, and I don't, we don't know what type of posture he had, but he's there to listen to God. Maybe he just began praying, oh, God, would you just speak to my heart? Lord, would you make it clear what it is you want to say to these kings? He's focusing on hearing from God. He's searching for, for an answer from God. These kings are, have searched uh, in military strength. They've searched in a person. But Elisha is going to search with God. And God is going to give him an answer. It's amazing what, what's going to happen here. So God's word for this, these kings were a double blessing. God revealed that he would bring provision and victory to these kings. The first part of Elisha's message concerned the provision. This is uh, verse 16. He said, thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed. Remember, the problem is lack of water. I'll make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind 
or rain, but that stream bed, I love that, that stream bed, that one right there, shall be filled with water so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. Isn't that amazing? That it, how, it's so easy for us to go to the how. Well, how is God going to do that? How is God going to, how, how am I going to pay for that mission trip? How am I going to pay for college? How am I going to be able to retire? How am I going to be able to do this? How am I going to be able to share the gospel? What if they ask me a question? What will I say? How am I going to respond? You and I often go to the how. We're not told the how here. We're just told what God would do. We're told the bottom line. God says, I will bring water. Uh, I'm not going to do it by rain. You're not going to see wind. There will just be water. Water's going to appear right there. It's so interesting. You and I will often go to the how and think, well, how are we going to make this happen? And God's not concerned with the how. He can handle the how. God's talking about the what here. And so I love verse 18. And by the way, Elisha didn't ask God how. Elisha's trusting that, hey, you know, I mean, after you've ministered to Elijah for about 18 years, after you've seen Elijah go up into a whirlwind in heaven, after you've parted the Jordan River, he's seen it twice. He's not concerned about how. He knows God can do the how. He just needs to hear, is this, God, is this what you want to do? And so that's what he's concerned with. So verse 18, this is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. It's my favorite verse in this chapter. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. The term for light means to appear trifling, easy, of little account. This is an easy thing in the sight of the Lord. That's what Elisha's saying. That's God's word. This is an easy thing. God's not going to work up a sweat trying to bring water. After all, he spoke and the whole world came into existence. Why, why is, is bringing water a hard thing for him? This was easy for God to fill the stream beds. Now, the Israelites probably had to dig trenches near the stream bed so it would contain all the water that God would send. But the point is that God's going to do a miracle. And uh, notice the last part of verse 18. This is the second part. God's going to give provision, but he's also going to give victory. He said, he will also give the Moabites into your hand. You're going to go in there, their land. You're going to knock down the trees. You're going to devastate the land. So God says, I will provide water, and I will give you victory. That, those were the, that was a dual uh, promise there. He's going to allow these allied forces to invade and conquer the land. Now, the first part of the blessing was fulfilled the next morning. Look at verse 20. The next morning, about the time of offering the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. Isn't that amazing? Now, Edom had mountains. So we're practically probably what happened is God brought water from on high and it just trickled down and it came down and to fill this dry riverbed, it said it filled the country. The whole, the whole thing was just supernatural provision. God's, God's mercy. Rain, it was just incredible. It was a miracle. And so notice the timing of the water supply. The time of offering the sacrifice. Well, that was the morning sacrifice, which was the third hour of the day, which was about 9 a.m. So at the time of worship, at the time of recommitment, the time of rededication where you say, God, this whole day is yours. I'm committing myself to you. At that moment, that's when the water appeared. Isn't that amazing? At a time of worship, 
at a time of submission to God, that's when supernatural provision appeared. That's what will happen when you and I will worship God. If we'll seek first, as Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, he'll take care of the how. If we'll just seek him, he'll take care of the details. Did you know in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, when the thousands of souls were gathered there, the Holy Spirit came. It was at this same time, about 9 in the morning, 3,000 people were saved. It was the time here of commitment. And it, God says, it's an easy thing for me to do. It's easy. Well, Moab heard about these allied forces coming towards them, verse 21. And so it was all hands on deck. From youngest to oldest, they put on armor, and, and they're getting preparing for battle. Uh, but what happened? They woke up early in the morning, and they looked down and saw this water. Now, for the Israelites, water was provision and blessing. For the Moabites, it tricked them into thinking something else. Um, the soil there was red. And so when the, the, in fact, the word Edom is related to the word for reddish brown. So this red soil underneath the water, when the sun rose and, and the sun shone down onto the water, it looked red. And they thought, hey, these, these armies have been fighting against each other. They've killed each other. And so their blood is, the water's turned red. So there's chaos down there. So, hey, let's just ride right in and just pick up their supplies and, you know, we win. And so that's what they were thinking. And, um, but what happened, they went in there. It says Israel rose up and drove them back into their land because that's not what had happened. Uh, the water only appeared to be red. And then Israel defeated their cities and devastated their land just like God said. Our second and final point tonight is this. Searching for help at the proper source produces an improbable outcome. Searching for help at the proper source produces an improbable outcome. Improbable meaning it's unlikely. When we seek God for help, he will do things that we, you can't explain. You can't explain how that water appeared. It was supernatural. Just God miraculously provided. You can't explain how God uh, or Jesus uh, blessed five loaves and two fish and fed maybe up to 15,000 people. Supernatural provision. That, that's what happens when, you, when we will go to God and ask him for help. And so Elisha sought help from God. Elisha may not have called fire down from heaven like Elijah did, but he was God's man in this moment, and he spoke the truth of God. And it was clear to the kings from this point on, Elisha is a man of God. And Yahweh, he is still the one true God. He was showed up in Mount Carmel, and he showed up here in the border of Edom and Moab. So everybody knew now, Elisha, he is, he is a prophet of God. In closing, I want to ask you a few questions by way of application. First, what is the dried up stream bed in your life? What is the place that at one time it was flowing with water, it was a place of nourishment, but for some reason it's, it's dried up now? It could be your marriage, it could be your career, it could be some relationship with a friend or family member. At one time it was a source of encouragement, it was a source of refreshment, but for some reason it's dried up now and you, you need God to intervene. You need a touch from God. You need a miracle from God to restore 
to bring water back to that dried up stream bread, to bring love back into that relationship, to remove bitterness, to bring a, a spirit of forgiveness into that relationship. What is that dried up stream bread in your life? Second question, which person are you in this story? There's a lot of different characters, several kings. Which one are you? Are you Jehoram? Have you been, are you known as religious, but, but you don't really love God? Jehoram was religious. He tolerated religions, but he didn't love God. He didn't love Yahweh. In fact, he, he was really neither all good or nor all bad. He was just kind of right in the middle. And uh, based on his example, one writer wrote this, don't treat God's word like an airbag in your car, only there in case of accident. Don't, don't treat God's word, you know, God's word is here. Don't come to it once a year. When you're in emergency, go to it daily because God wants to speak to your heart. Or are you more like Jehoshaphat? Do you make decisions impulsively? Do you, do you make quick decisions without talking to God, without going to him first and saying, God, I, please give me wisdom. Show me what to do. Would you make the path straight for me? Or are you more like Elisha? Are you content to wait upon God, to speak the truth of God? You're not concerned about pleasing people. You're there just to represent God and to be faithful to him. The third question is this, where are you searching for help tonight? Are you searching for help in the wrong places or are you going to God and you're saying, Lord, I don't know what to do, but I need help in my marriage. God, I need help in this relationship. I need help with my finances. And Lord, I just pray you'd help me. God, I pray you'd give me wisdom. And you know what the Lord would say to you? That's an easy thing for me to do. That's a light thing for me to do. It's not too hard. He, he can handle it. Some of you, your next step tonight would be to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you need to ask God to forgive you of your sin and to receive his son Jesus as your Savior. That would be your greatest need. You've searched for peace with God through works, through trying to please God in all these different ways. My friend, that will only lead in frustration and doubt. The only way to have peace with God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I encourage you to, really, I plead with you to make that decision. Don't put it off. Well, earlier this month, June 2020, the treasure that Forrest Finn hid was actually found. It was found, uh, and on the top of the chest were the words, this is Finn's treasure. Can you imagine how happy that man must have been when he found Finn's treasure? It had been hidden for almost 10 years. And uh, it was found by a man who wanted to remain anonymous, but he found the chest and he took a picture of it and he sent it to Forrest Finn, who's still alive, by the way, 89 years of age now. And Finn uh, confirmed this was indeed the chest. And it was in the same spot where Finn had hit it back in 2010. The interesting part of this story is how the man found the chest. In 2010, Finn published an auto, an, his autobiography entitled The Thrill of the Chase. And Finn wrote a 24-line poem that contained clues concerning the treasure chest location. The poem was actually a roadmap to for finding the treasure. There were nine clues throughout this 24-line poem about where to find this treasure. 
And then there was a page there that had a map of the Rocky Mountains and, and there were certain points that were highlighted. The man who found the treasure said the poem in Finn's book led him right to the hiding spot. Isn't that interesting? Hundreds of thousands of people had searched for this treasure. But this one man found it by looking at the proper source, where the clues were. My friend, I don't know what you're searching for tonight, but the proper source to find your answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to him. Let him help you. Would you bow your head in prayer with me? Father, I thank you for the word of God that you tell us if we seek you, we will find you. You're not hiding. You're there. You are gracious and compassionate. You're ready to have mercy on those who will come to you. So I pray tonight, Father, for my brothers and sisters in Christ who find themselves in the middle of a hard situation, in the middle of a dry riverbed that it used to seems so nourishing and things used to be going so well, but maybe they're in a hard spot right now. And I pray they would turn to you. I pray they would cast all their cares upon you. And God, would you intervene and help them? I pray for someone who may not be saved tonight and is trying, searching, trying to find peace with you and forgiveness and wondering what to do. And all they need to do is believe in Jesus Christ. Lord, would you just draw that person to yourself? Father, thank you that you minister to us every time we open your word. Thank you for what you're teaching us through Elisha. And I pray in the weeks ahead, would you just soften our hearts? Give us tender hearts, I pray. Lord, that we become more like Jesus Christ every time we open your word. And we ask and pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you again for joining us at our midweek service. Keep Continue to pray for our pastor. He'll uh, be in the book of Job again this Sunday. It'll be exciting. We look forward to seeing you then. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.